Welcome to Scripps Talks. Today we have Justice Hill joining us. Justice is a former faculty member in the school, twice over former faculty member, in fact, and uh, we're glad to have him. Twice? Glad to have him back in the podcast form. Welcome, Justice. Thanks, Bob. Justice, uh, you still have a lot of students on campus who know you and you, and, uh, you know them uh, because you haven't been gone from the faculty that long. What kind of feedback are you getting about your coronavirus experience through social media and through other contacts, with, uh, particularly with former students? Not just former students, but all my friends have been very supportive. You know, what can we do to help? And there's a curiosity among, I think, everybody in this country, what are the symptoms? Because everybody wants to know, as I said, I got to go to the hospital. And so they took me to a hospital in Cleveland, took me to the emergency room, actually. And so they took a battery of tests. One, obviously, they they, uh, x-ray your lungs because that's a huge indicator of, from what I'm told, of how serious this virus might be if you can't breathe. And so my lungs were great. The heart rate was great. Everything was great. They were going to send me home. My sister came and my brother came to the emergency room shortly after I arrived. My sister, they had me go to the uh, bathroom to, to give them a, a, a specimen. And so while I was there, the sister in the emergency room doctor, I guess, got into a discussion. And my sister said, you are not sending my brother home without the test. They weren't going to give me the test. And I've heard that from a number of people, that there's a reluctance to give the test. But when I got back to the uh, ER room, the physician said, okay, you know, I'm about to give you the test. So she gave me the test. And then she said, you should hear with, between three or four days uh, if you have the virus. If you don't hear from us, you don't have the virus. So three or four days went by, didn't hear anything, called my physician talked to him. He said, well, that's good news. And then three days later, I get a call from the state health department saying that I had the virus and they put me on quarantine. Seems like a bit of a breakdown and you not getting notified by the hospital. Well, absolutely. There's no question about that. And I hate to put it this way, but I think in a city that's mostly black and most of the people that they see that go into the emergency room from what you hear are people with poor insurance policies or none at all. I felt that in hindsight, there was a reluctance to give it to me because they didn't know when I got into the emergency uh, room if I had insurance because they, they, they never asked. But I have a, a really good uh, insurance policy, which is pretty much the same one I, as I had when I was teaching at Ohio U, same company and everything. So I had a good policy. But there was no reason for them to withhold that, particularly now. If somebody comes in and he tells you, or here she tells you they're in crisis. In my case, maybe crisis was the wrong word, but I just had never felt like that ever in my life, that you should want to find out what the answers were. And clearly, even though everything came up okay, there was something wrong. And now we've, many days later, we found out what it was, and it was the coronavirus. It appears to me that the media have been dialing in on this particular issue of um, African-Americans suffering disproportionately, dying at a disproportionately higher rate. What do you think of the media coverage of, of that question? Do you think they're doing a good job of, of understanding a concerning trend? 
Bob, I can't really answer that because I read so much <laughs> because I want to know so much. So I'm reading New York Times. I've got a buddy who is a statistics guy. And every day, every day, he updates the coronavirus statistics. He spotlights the cities that have the most problem problems, most deaths. One of those cities is Detroit. So maybe there are some issues there that I should be mindful of. I do know, talking to people and from what I read, if you have underlying health issues, you're more inclined to be at risk of dying. And a disproportionate number of black inner city residents, and Detroit has a, a lot of black inner city residents, have either high blood pressure or other health problems that make contracting the coronavirus almost a death sentence. I'm not overly critical of media coverage because every everybody wants answers and a cure. Give us a medical update on, on how you're doing and, and what you're doing in this time of, uh, of the virus. What stage are you at? I was on state-ordered quarantine, so I couldn't leave the house, which that was good because I had kind of quarantined myself anyway until I got better, but I couldn't leave the house. When they released me last week, I called my physician. I had a discussion with him about what limits I could have. They also gave me the state of Ohio. And before I forget, Mike DeWine has done an exceptional job, in my opinion, of keeping Ohioans abreast of what's happening here. And I think the state has been very aggressive in letting people know the things that we should or shouldn't do. And even when I got the call from state officials, Bob, I was on the phone for two hours as they walked me through all the things. If I had a question, they were willing to answer anything I needed to know. And I can't thank them enough. But after they released me, I wanted to be sure that I didn't rush back to anything. Because one thing that people aren't sure, and from talking to people, what are the chances that I could contract it again? And I haven't seen any evidence, and my physician wasn't sure that I couldn't contract it again. Although other people have told me that I'm invulnerable to, to the virus. If I am, I'm, I'm going to pretend like I'm not because I'm not going to put myself at risk of catching it again because I just don't know if anybody has definitive answers on that and it doesn't do any good to be foolish. Well, you clearly had an experience that you don't want to have again. Oh, there's no question about that. But Bob, to be honest, compared to the horror stories I've heard from other people, well, everybody's horror story. If you get got it, it's your, it's your own horror stories. But my problems didn't seem to be as dire as some other people, even people who survived. It didn't rise to that level, I don't think. But you know, everybody's problem is their problem, and it's severe to me. Even if I try to compare it to other people, I want to be better. That's I definitely want to be better. You had a, a, an extensive and impressive career as a sports journalist, and I'm, I know you're really connected to that community uh, and, and are well aware of the challenges facing sports journalists right now. Do you have any advice to offer to a student who's interested in going into sports journalism as far as how to, how to prepare themselves in a situation like this when maybe the thing they they care passionately about just disappears or is on hold? That's an interesting question that I've had discussions with people who, a number of people at the Plain Dealer who you heard about the layoffs there, who are good friends of mine. 
And one of the things they talked about was they never saw a day where sports journalism would be where it is today. And one of the things I would tell students would be this. Be as great as you can be at one thing, but also understand you need to know other things as well. How to do a podcast, how to shoot video, how to take photos. Be really, really good at one because then you'll have a chance. But if your goal is to just be this multimedia journalist with solid skills, nothing spectacular about your skill set, I think you need a fallback plan because the industry isn't going to embrace you the way they will somebody who can do one thing extraordinarily well and do other things pretty well. And that frightens me. A former student of mine got laid off a couple of days ago because there were no stories to be told. He's working at a newspaper in Vermont, but he was covering high schools, but there's no high school covers. There's no high school games. The question that he has for himself now is, what next? Now, what's next for me? He doesn't know. But I'm also a believer in this. If you have a dream, you've got to play your dream out. For example, if you're a basketball player going through high school and you're 5'11", and you're dreaming that you're going to play in the NBA. If that's your dream, play it out until at least to uh, maybe you graduate from college, if that's what your goal is, until the game tells you it doesn't need you. And I think that's the same way in journalism. Play it out until sports journalism or whatever tells you it doesn't need you. But to have those skills, to be able to write, to be able to tell stories, you're always going to find some company in my opinion, who will need those skills. But I, I would hate to tell, tell anybody to walk away from journalism. That's their dream, and I don't want you to walk away from a dream. Well, there's going to be a lot of interesting stories that come out of this when the dust settles, but obviously we don't know exactly when, when that's going to be. Uh, I, do, I do see this as an opportunity, as a time when a young sports journalism student or a, a recent grad could do a lot of reading of, you know, some classic sports journalism, uh, take some time to read some memoirs, you know, some books written by sports journalists and, and use it as a time to be immersed in that literature. You're absolutely right, but I'm a believer in writers read and writers write. That's what you do. If you're going to get better, you have to read great writers and you have to practice the craft because if you don't, there's going to be a hole in your skill set. I'm not a big believer in, in necessarily reading great stories by sports writers. I like to read great stories by great writers, whether it's Mike Royko, Jimmy Breslin, Peter Hamill. I mean, a number of guys who, who really didn't come up in the sports world. My favorite writer growing up, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, is Carl Rowan, a black writer who wrote for the black press. Rowan was always on TV shows and things like that, but he's a brilliant writer and his ability to tell stories about black people. But to my knowledge, I've never seen a story by Carl Rowan about sports. Definitely familiar with his work, and I believe he was on campus uh, at some point in the, the last couple decades, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to check that before I include that in the podcast. Now, Justice, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your own plans for the future, because one of the things that you're noted for, even before you retired, but certainly since you retired, is traveling the world. And I know you have a, a kind of a bucket list of places you want to go, and you've been visiting a lot of amazing places and taking us with you on those trips. What is going to change, if anything, in this uh, in the post-COVID-19 era for you? I can tell you right now, I'm not leaving the country this year. 
I've decided I don't want to risk being in a foreign country where I do get sick and I'm at the mercy of inferior health care. I don't want to do that. There are so many places within the United States that I haven't been that I want to visit. For example, even though I was a baseball writer, since I left writing baseball, there are seven or eight stadiums. They're new, or for some reason, I never got an opportunity to go to those stadiums that I'm going to visit this summer. So I'm going to go to those stadiums if baseball resumes. I'm going to go to those stadiums, watch a game there, and knock those stadiums off, off my bucket list. The fact of the matter is, if it wasn't for the, the virus, I would be in South Africa right now. Right now, I'd be in South Africa. That was my goal. I looked into it, and I put it off because it was around February. Airfares really looked good, so I was about to get the ticket. And then I went to, I said, I'll wait until after I get back from New York. And then everything fell apart, and obviously I didn't move on it. But I definitely would like to go to South Africa because I was always intrigued by apartheid. You know, how you could have such a rigid world in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. I just didn't understand that. But then again, I didn't understand the racial problems of the South as a little kid in the 60s and stuff. You know, how can people hate each other so much, especially when they don't know each other? But I did want to see South Africa. some point, I probably want to go to Zimbabwe as well, because, you know, what Robert Mugabe did there when he took power... I was intrigued by how he really just reversed things instead of when he took power, he just did everything he could to deny whites what they denied blacks. And and I don't think it was a it was a seamless transition the way it seems to be uh, in South Africa. Not that South Africa, by all accounts, is perfect, but I think it was a smoother transition away from apartheid than you saw in Zimbabwe. We look forward to you being able to resume your travel so that we can tag along with you on, on social media. Justice, uh, we appreciate all that you did for the School of Journalism and our students. And we wish you Godspeed and your recovery. And we look forward to seeing you back in Athens. Oh, yeah. I will still come back. Uh, don't forget, I have, a, I have a program there that I, I really uh, don't want to see die, the Bob Moran Sports Symposium. Uh, I was talking to Jerry Curvin the other day about making sure that he starts lining up people now because Jerry's going to be president of APSE. But these are things that are worth saving. I just don't want to see him die. Well, I've always uh, appreciated your passion and your commitment to students as your colleague twice again. We should talk about that. <laughs> we were young assistant professors back in the day, yeah. and then you, yeah. you went back into the industry and then... We were able to get you back on campus for several years. So thank you again for all your service to the School of Journalism. I owe the school way more than they owe me. Trust me on that one. I've built friendships that I couldn't, couldn't have possibly have had had it not been for uh, the Scripps School of Journalism. So uh, I appreciate that. I definitely appreciate the fact that you reached out to me and, and invited me back for a second tour of duty. That was an amazing experience in my life. It was something I will never, ever forget. So thank you. Thank you. And we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Take care, Bob.